Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialised logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to another episode of Strong Voices. We're coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios here on Arata Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911. We're on Aiken FM 100.5 here in Bantua Alice Springs. We're also coming to you online via the Karma website at karma.com.au. Uh, today is Monday, the 7th of October 2019. I'm your host, Kyle Dowling. Coming up on the show today, the diversity and innovation of First Nations entrepreneurs will be on display this month at the Bariamal Demo Day and Awards. Bariamal is an organisation which helps support growing Indigenous businesses. The CEO of Bariamal will be discussing uh, the event that's going to be happening uh, near the tail end of this month. Also, the uh, Mental Illness Fellowship of Australia is warning a change is desperately needed with the national mental health system failing many regional Australians. Tony Stevenson, CEO of the Mental Illness Fellowship of Australia, will be explaining those concerns this morning. And finally, on the first Sunday of October, the Northern Territory community of Andari Hermansburg celebrated the arrival of fresh drinking water from the spring, uh, Kupurilia, which uh, sits just outside of the community. Karma travelled out to the community at the weekend to speak with uh, some of the residents during those celebrations. We're going to be hearing some of those conversations today as well. And we're of course, as well, we're going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country as well, that segment coming up. Uh, on the show. But before all of that, we are going to go to a track and then we'll be right back with our first interview. You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. (laughs) Yes, that's right. You're listening to Strong Voices. We're going to be heading into our first story of the show now. Uh, Barry Amal is a world leader in Indigenous entrepreneurship support, uh, providing a range of programs to help First Nations businesses to develop and grow. Uh, Programs include ones like the Bariamal Accelerator Program. Uh, Following the program, five Indigenous uh, entrepreneurs are presenting their business models during the Bariamal Demo Day and Awards on October 25th at the Victorian Innovation Hub in Melbourne. I recently spoke with uh, Dean Foley, CEO of Bariamal. Well, Dean, it's uh, great to have you back in Calm Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Carl. It's always uh, an honour. You know, excited to jump on the radio and have a chat and come radio. Well, some exciting news. I understand on the uh, 25th of October, Indigenous entrepreneurs are going to be presenting their business in Melbourne during the uh, Bariamal Demo Day and Awards. I understand this sort of comes off the back of the Bariamal Accelerator program. Can you start by explaining a a bit about that program and the work Bariamal has been doing with these Indigenous entrepreneurs in the lead-up to this event? Yeah, sure. I guess a bit of back background story. In 2006, we ran the world's first Indigenous Accelerator. 
And um, from that, like, you know, having no money and no support from government, um, we're just trying to hit some programs and events and just trying to build up the Indigenous uh, startup business ecosystem at that time. And and then um, at the end of last year, we were able to speak to our first government contract through LaunchVic, which is an innovation arm of the Victorian government, and to be able to run our, our first um, state accelerator down in Victoria. Now, we have spoken to you um, quite a few times in the past, but those who are unfamiliar, can you explain what the actual role of a business accelerator actually is? Yes, so um, it varies quite a bit. You know, I guess there's no uh, definite definition to say, but overall, like accelerators are supposed to accelerate the success of um, businesses, usually over a three-month period, by providing education, workshops, mentoring, access to networks and also financial support to be able to yeah, accelerate that success and get them up to the next stage where they can raise more money and, and go on to bigger things. And startups usually take very um, early stage businesses, usually, you know, pre-revenue and that kind of stuff and get them up to that stage where they're investor ready. Now, let's talk about the, the demo day. Where is that going to be happening in Melbourne and, and what's the actual purpose of the event? Yes, so the Victorian Innovation Hub, which is a pretty slick building um, in the CBD of Melbourne. Now, I guess all the innovation happens. I think there's a couple of hundred startups around here operating out of here. And I heard another startup in Stone Chalk raised like 10 million, like 30, 40 million recently for their financial um, tech startups. So, but to have it here is, I guess, just the ideal location. Firstly, we get to, you know, get to run the event here for free, which is always good to save on course. But yeah, the hub is kind of showcasing the innovation out of Victoria to the world. Um, so that's what we want to do with the Indigenous startups and entrepreneurs in our program, bring them into a space where we can showcase their successes to the world and, and show people that, you know, Indigenous entrepreneurs exist, you know, with our first entrepreneurs in Australia and we can build successful businesses just like anybody else. I understand five of the sort of businesses will be taking part in this event, right? And, and can you just explain a bit about what, what some of those types of businesses are sort of involved in or looking to get involved in? Yeah, quite a range of businesses. Like I think, in my opinion, uh, the Indigenous business ecosystem is you know still developing. You know, we're only allowed to get involved with the Australia's economy, you know, quite recent. So things are developing and growing. Um, but we have one tech startup um, that's using AI technology to help Australians overcome barriers to seeing a dentist by using um, just a smartphone to take pictures of your teeth you know, analyze and, and diagnose any teeth problems. Yeah, just using your phone, we've got a catering business uh, that started up with only a couple of hundred dollars earlier this year, and now they're turning over tens of thousands and, you know, going on to, to bigger and bigger, bigger and better things, you know, scaling up. And then also we've got one business um, from up your way, um, Binary Security, which aims to protect businesses in Australia from cyber threats by providing technology uh, solutions. We also have a a fashion business called Nagali, and they're trying to bring the artwork of talented Indigenous Australians to the world through stylish, sustainable and premium quality clothing and homewares, which is pretty good. And then 
the last one is Afalance, which is um, Indigenous Tourism slash uh, Mapping Marketplace that aims to connect non-Indigenous Australians with Indigenous stories and tourism opportunities. Well, that, that really is an amazing diversity. I think it's important, isn't it, to, to, to be able to show people the diversity in terms of uh, these Indigenous entrepreneurs, their skill sets, their knowledge, their understanding. Because often, you know, we can see uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's knowledge sort of, you know, in a way sort of scoped that it's, you know, in, in a very closed box in terms of what the mob can do. But they, they can do anything when they put their mind to it. Yeah, exactly. And when I first started out, you know, it's, there's a lot of um, negative stereotypes like Indigenous entrepreneurs, like, you know, what do they do? And I still get actually questioned, you know, you know, what what do indigenous entrepreneurs do? And yeah, I'm not too sure if people expect me to say, well, you know, they do paintings and art and all that kind of stuff, you know, that we get put in the boxes for doing. But yeah, indigenous entrepreneurs are just as good as anybody else and, you know, they're building so many different businesses. So. And, and do you think that those, in terms of breaking down those stereotypes, are an important part of, of being able to showcase the work of these entrepreneurs at an event like this? Yeah, definitely. You know, it all helps um, to help break those negative stereotypes, gain, you know, more support to support these entrepreneurs. So I think it's, it's really important because, you know, it still exists, those negative stereotypes that haven't really gone away um, despite, you know, some progress. So it's especially those, uh, the ones that are a bit in their box sometimes, a bit isolated, you know, the kind of like the influences in government and all that. It's good to, you know, get them to events like this and really show them what's possible to try and get more support to take things to the next level. And in regards to the event, is the demo intending to attract investors to these businesses as well? Yeah, yeah. So the Melbourne Angel Investment Group has got a few people coming along and all their members... Um, know about the event, so yeah, we've got a whole bunch of investors, um, you know, professionals like uh, King and Wood Mallison, the law firm. They've been helping us out with pro bono support for the businesses we've been working in, uh, working with, and um, yeah, other professionals uh, within the, the startup ecosystem too, like startup founders and all that kind of stuff. So, and then yeah, the greater the greater Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. Like we've got some participants from the Wurundjeri uh, tribe going to come along and check it out, which is really exciting. And, and as we mentioned, we, we are discussing the, the Bariamal uh, Demo Day and awards event happening this month. Well, what's the awards aspect of the event about? Um, yeah, we just wanted to you know, do something cool and I guess be able to reward you know, the entrepreneurs in our program. Um, so we've just got a few awards, like First Nations Entrepreneur of the Year Award, um, the Black Swan Award, just to really reward the, the entrepreneurs to, you know, they're showcasing the work, but, you know, give them, a, I guess, some prizes and some cool stuff too. Because sometimes, you know, when you're in the startup world, you know, things are happening really fast and, you know, there's a lot of failures and stuff and you need those little things just to, um, I don't know, just so you appreciate it kind of thing, you know, like the hard work you're doing to actually going somewhere so it'd be good to recognize their hard work and also we've got two other awards um the volunteer award for you know we've got a, a network of volunteers so we have to reward the people helping out especially a lot of non-indigenous people giving up their time and, and helping out um, with, in the program where they can for nothing um to be able to 
reward our allies and partners helping out. I think that's really important too. Yeah, and definitely, as you were saying, that that recognition, that that positive. Uh, support, especially in the early stages, I think, of, of starting up a business. Well, I haven't done it myself. I can imagine that that early stages can be quite a, a daunting and, and scary process. You talked about, you know, how the space is sort of still evolving at the moment. How would you sort of describe the, the uh, state of Indigenous businesses and, and that support and recognition that Indigenous entrepreneurs within that entrepreneurial space in Australia is, is growing? Is that similar to what you may have seen sort of overseas or anything like that? Have we seen that, you know, the Indigenous peoples uh, getting that recognition a bit more now in Australia? Um, yeah, it's a, big, it's a big question. You know, there's, there's good and bad things. Like, I'm pretty familiar um, with what's happened over New Zealand um, and also went over to um, America, I think last year, uh, and visited some of the Native American communities over there and, and saw what was happening. And I think the ecosystem is growing um, and there's a lot more opportunities, obviously, previously from my parents, grandparents and ancestors. But um, uh, to be honest, there's still a lot of tokenism. Like, you know, we did this, a survey with Indigenous entrepreneurs, professionals in the Barry Network and, and black cladding was really high up in that the priority list to fix. So, you know, I think things like that, the Indigenous procurement policy that aims, when it started out, it aimed to help um, Indigenous entrepreneurs and businesses. But, you know, who's winning all the contracts now? You know, who's, who's actually winning it? And it's, um, from what I've seen, it's the big joint ventures. You know, the Indigenous entrepreneurs that have partnered with um, multinational companies. And it's very questionable, you know, some of these policies that are supposed to help what, actual impact is, you know, in community and, you know, creating long-term jobs and that kind of stuff. And I've heard similar stories overseas, like in South Africa, you know, they looked at how can they create well, local businesses, um, but they have the same problem over there where, you know, there's a lot of black cladding. And I've heard a story where there's one African guy who's supposedly, you know, the person to go to, and he has... 200, supposedly 200 joint ventures with all these non-Indigenous uh, companies in South Africa to put in for um, procurement contracts. So it's very sad, you know, that that's happening and it'd be good to see, um, you know, policies in Australia, I guess, a li- little bit less tokenistic and start a bit more accountability, um, measuring the impact in community because, you know, when I go visit my community in Gunma, it's just a, the same problems. You get, a, but you get, you know, these people getting rich, but you know, the community is not getting any better. Finally, in regards to the event, I understand that's uh, open to the general public to register to attend as well. How can people sort of do that? And what, what are you hoping that mm. both the indigenous businesses leave this event with, as well as those people who attend as well? Yes, yeah, so for the registrations have filled up already. So unfortunately. No, we can't accept any more registrations. Uh, we were going to you know, get hundreds of people in here, uh, but I went to another demo day. Um, I think Monash will run that university down here, and, um, yeah, that was a bit, bit chaotic. So I think 100 people of quality, you know, all these investors come along, and stuff will be a lot uh, better for, for everybody. Um, I feel... The people coming along, a lot of them probably haven't met an Indigenous Australian, probably don't know what you know they look like kind of thing, and 
and that kind of stuff. So it'd be good to just uh, break neg- negative stereotypes and also show them that which is as good as any other entrepreneur and we can build successful businesses too. That was uh, Dean Foley, CEO of Barriamal. Make sure you stick around uh, because we're going to be hearing soon from Tony Stevenson, CEO of the Mental Illness Fellowship of Australia, right after this. Hi guys, this is Dan Sutton and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Yes, welcome back to Strong Voices. Well, as we reported in our news, a peak alliance of community-managed mental health services currently supporting over 20,000 people says the national mental health system is failing many regional Australians, with 75% of people who have a severe or complex mental illness being left out. Tony Stevenson, CEO of the Mental Illness Fellowship of Australia, says the current situation is totally unacceptable and highlights a huge number of people in regional Australia are very clearly at risk of escalating mental health issues. It is a complex situation, there's no doubt about that. Every person has a different set of needs and those needs change and we have far too much complexity in the system. Uh, we have the, the federal government's involvement, we have the state territory government's involvement, so we can do a lot better. We can certainly break down all of that fragmentation that's, that's there in the system. We want to see people getting uh, the right support at the right time. We want to see more integration of uh, a whole range of community support programs like housing and mental health working together. So we think that, that we can do better and we're certainly calling on the government at the moment to put their support behind a national program of recovery support for people with a severe and complex mental illness. When we look at the cost to the whole community across the board at, at every different level, I mean, obviously for those who have a family member or a partner who are dealing with the day-to-day issues and survival of that person, the meltdown effect to the community continues to grow and um, surely there's a massive cost saving if these people who do have problems and need help and assistance are given that, it would benefit everyone. It certainly would. At one level, it's a straightforward solution, isn't it? You mentioned uh, the family and and friends that are trying to hold everything together. Even the support for carers, it's a different system to supporting a person with a mental illness. We need to bring that together. We need to bring together all of those factors that are going to keep people well and particularly keep people connected into community. We don't want people having to leave their community and and go into hospital. That's the last resort. It's far too costly for all of us to support those very expensive services, but we don't want people being removed from their community either. We want people to continue to, to be a part of their community, to contribute to their community, and that's where we think we need greater support going into. Again, when we look at the statistics relating to the First Nations peoples of this country, many who continue to live remotely they are overly affected because the uh, the trickle-down uh, feed of money to help and assist them, uh, often in many cases, um, it's only in the last uh, five years perhaps that we're starting to see an understanding of just how how difficult it is to deliver services remotely. And you were talking about having to remove people from country. Well, obviously for an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person, as far as their own mental health and well-being, isn't a solution. No, absolutely not. You know, we do have one advantage happening for us at the moment. So we have um, regional planning underway. 
through the primary health network. So in the Northern Territory, we've got the primary health network, which is really is a, a Commonwealth body, and uh, the Territory government working alongside them to do a plan for Northern Territory. Now, what that means is that we will start to be able to really drill down into what's needed at a community level. When we've relied in the past on a national approach, uh, it means that we have certain programs that then have to roll out all across the country and they don't necessarily make sense in many communities. What this uh, regional planning will do for us is to enable people in regional communities to basically have a say in how many people are there in our community that need this help, what's missing, what's working well, what can we do differently, but also to say, look, in our community, we think we should do it this way. And the primary health networks will have the flexibility to provide funding for services in a more creative way, in a way which gets down to a local community and can understand how to do it better in that local community. In a sense, it's always been certainly something that would create a much more effective system, working from grassroots community level upwards instead of a top-down approach. That's right. That's right. And I'm quite optimistic about uh, what we can do through this regional planning process. But the government hasn't fully committed to it in the sense that they haven't said, OK, do your plan, and then we will come to the party and provide the funds for that plan. What they're doing at the moment is, is far too piecemeal. It's far too short-term. We're putting all of this effort into the planning. Then we should have the confidence that there will be the investment to follow the plan so that we can start working on those solutions. A very large number of people with mental illness uh, are living regionally and remote and uh, we've already touched on the issue of delivery of services and understanding that particularly for the First Nations peoples they've had their own methods of using traditional faith healers and nunkery to help people with mental health issues. But um, there has been over the last uh, few years an understanding um, from within the First Nations community that uh, at some stage they might need more assistance than what they can deliver themselves. So for many, many years, um, First Nations peoples have taken up the mantle of caring for their mentally ill and at a great cost saving for governments. Um, it is now time to recognise that uh, perhaps it's time for some payback. Yeah, I agree. I think there are a whole range of local solutions. And, and, and of course, when communities work together and utilise all of their strengths and, and knowledge, and practice, then we should be rewarding that. We should be bringing that closer into the system. There's a lot of unpaid support that's going on in, in the mental health uh, arena. In fact, that's worth billions of dollars a year if government had to turn around and fund all of that. So we do want communities to support each other, and particularly families. Um, we want to support them to be able to do that work. It is far more cost-effective and, more importantly, keeps people connected to community and country, as you say. Just to finish off, Tony, many people who may suffer a form of mental illness, it, it isn't necessarily permanent. There are treatments and ways of helping assist people back into community so they can be active and participating. That's right. For some of the very severe forms of mental illness, unfortunately, we don't have a cure. But what we can do is reduce the 
frequency of episodes of severe mental illness with the right level of support. And so we can actually enable people to have a much uh, better quality of life. It's only when, uh, when people don't get support that their illness escalates, gets to a crisis point, and that's when they have to go into hospital and potentially leave their community. So there is a lot more that we can do, and it is episodic. We can step it up when it needs to be more. We can step it down when, when people are relatively well. And then, of course, you know, when people are well, well, they might want to have a, have a look at uh, employment as an option for them. They can start actually contributing back into the community. So there's a lot of benefit in just getting that, that right mix of support at the right level for, the, for that person when they need it. Tony Stevenson, CEO of the Mental Illness Fellowship of Australia, uh, speaking with Carms Paul Wiles. We're going to go to a quick track now and then we'll be right back with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right. You are listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. I'm very happy to welcome into the studio with me is uh, Karma's Paul Wiles and Damien Williams. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, Carl. Well, it is time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. We'll start with you, Paul. I understand you've got a story uh, this morning in regards to discussions of euthanasia in Western Australia. Yeah, that's right. This is uh, from the Australian. Uh, they're reporting that the Western Australian Upper House is preparing to, to debate a voluntary assisted dying bill that will allow doctors to raise the subject of voluntary euthanasia with patients. The uh, Federal Minister for uh, Indigenous Australians, Ken White, a Noongar man from the southwest of the state, is against the proposal. And now uh, Federal Senator Pat Dodson is also joining the opposition to legalise euthanasia after warning that it could prevent the First Nations people from seeking medical care, depending on the uh, around you know the uh, health in remote communities um, so basically he's saying that um, voluntary assisted dying laws proposed for western australia will only increase suspicion around white fella medicine so uh, while the first nations uh, over the last couple of hundred years have alongside um, first uh, alongside uh, colonization and, and working uh, and starting to accept whitefella medicine and hospitals and doctors and now we're going to add to the confusion uh, you know one moment they've been told that doctors are there to help and save you and then the possibility of a doctor saying well um no, we don't have to do that because you might choose to do something else. So uh, I, I suppose it, it um, does raise those issues around confusion about the role of um, voluntary euthanasia in particular. Um, but that added confusion around, well, is a doctor there to prolong life or to help you walk away from it um, so voluntary euthanasia um, yeah it will always have um, people who are in favour obviously some people who've lived alongside a family member who's suffered for uh, decades and decades um, with an illness and um, they may have said themselves look I can't 
keep going on with this, I would prefer to choose another option other than treatment. And doctors do sign an oath of preserving life. So it does get very, very um, difficult. And when it comes down to those those sorts of discussions. But I think the confusion around, you know, certainly when we look at language barriers and uh, understanding of working alongside Western uh, medicine and Western doctors, um, it may be at another level of confusion. What do you think, um, Damo? Yeah, and I mean, like you're saying, you know, it's, everyone's just getting used to... Um, sort of uh, you know going to doctors to get help and stuff and then you know yeah on one hand it's doctors helping and on the other hand it's um, doctors assisting to you know die yeah. so yeah it's a bit it's um, a bit crazy <laughs> well we'll go to our next story on to you Damo I understand you've got a story this morning in regards to uh, indigenous people growing produce yeah um, South Australian indigenous vegetable grower um, um Nanga Produce has grown its business by dub by double thanks to its long term partnership with um, Coles Supermarket. The su- supplying Coles has given uh, Nanga Produce the confidence to expand its operations of growing crops, purchasing vegetables and herbs by providing the um, the scale and strength of operations required to supply one of the country's largest supermarkets. This story coming from the National Indigenous Times um, says, in partnership with a non-Aboriginal couple, Juliet and Nigel Tripodi, co-owners and and Indigenous couple Ron and Elizabeth Newchurch said the growth has come with increased um, staffing for the business, which uh, now includes six additional employees, including three Indigenous team members, um, and yeah, just being able to uh, you know provide the country's one of the country's biggest um, uh, produce sellers is is a pretty good story. What are they? Uh, what are they growing, Damon? Um, they are growing. Um, I think it's all just vegetables, um, all sorts of stuff: pumpkins, um, carrots. Yeah, bit of everything. It'd be, I think it'd be cool to see um, in that sort of space perhaps an opportunity to get more of the traditional bush foods as well involved in that because you know we're seeing I think a little bit of a push now from uh, at least in the the culinary space now the introduction a lot more of of traditional uh, bush foods and and ingredients and a lot of things it'd be be cool to see that I think more open in supermarkets as well yeah and I think you know there are they are um, uh, growing some um, native stuff as well you know herbs and vegetables Mm. Um, the the Majara, Majara, meaning silver wattle tree as well, brand. And okay. um, yeah, a few other things that um, that could be really interesting to see. Well, especially now with um, a lot of uh, chefs and, and cooks and stuff going towards the, um, you know, native native fruits and vegetables and, and, and things like that is, is pretty cool. Well, in, in the world of fine dining now, uh, First Nations um, produce is right at the top. Mm. Uh, certainly in, in South Australia. I mean, uh, uh, there's a Scottish chef who's been using uh, um, Aboriginal produce for for years and going out with the local mob fishing. Um, he's um, really taken it to another level as far as fine dining and um, mm. you know producing yeah. flavours now that uh, globally uh, people are starting to say... Because, you know, the, the journey 
is always around coming up with something new and different. Well, this particular produce has been there for thousands of years. Yeah. It's just that no one ever looked at it. Uh-huh. So, again, when we um, yeah look at the long-term connection to land and country, obviously the mob have got a pretty good understanding of what tastes good. And, uh, you know, coming back from the Torres Straits, was able to have some of those uh, wattle cookies. Yeah, what else cookies, which were pretty nice. Oh, great. <laughs> well, on that tasty note, Damien, I think we're going to wrap the news up there. Thanks, Damien. Thanks, Paul. Cheers. Thank you. We're going to go to track now, and then we'll be back with our final story. Strong Voices. That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio, where we're going to head into our uh, final story of the show. Well, in the 1920s and 30s, uh, Central Australia went through one of the most severe droughts in written history. Uh, the Hermansburg Mission, the once flourishing uh, community garden, uh, was wasting away with uh, livestock uh, also feeling the strain with over 90% of the mission's uh, animals perishing. So the early missionaries then, with the help of the local Western Aranda people, laid a pipeline from a uh, local spring called uh, Copilia, uh around uh, eight kilometres away with the first... With the f- first of the water reaching Indaria mission on October the 1st uh, 1935 and to celebrate the coming of the water a church service is held at the site of uh, Caprilia on the first Sunday of October every year. Kama's uh, ribs Paul Tolly was out there and spoke with local Western Aranda man uh, Mervyn Raggett and uh, Kevin forgive my pronunciation uh, Anwagunka uh, about why the day is so special to the uh, Western Aranda people. Looking at this old pot, you know, like there wasn't much steel in those days. They had to use one of these. And it, it, it must have been hard to put one of these in all the way and bear it. And you know, like accidentally dropping it, so you got to dig it out again, put another one in. You know, it's just about made out of rock too. This old cement, oh, one, cement one pipe, so whatever they used with these old ones. I mean, like, it must have been hard, not, not to damage it. And they carried it all the way up? Yeah, back and forth, wherever, on the shoulder. Shoulder? Yeah. Yep. Mm. Summer? Mm-hmm, summertime and all, yeah. <coughs> and digging the trench? <laughs> digging the trench, oh. <laughs> oh that must be, yeah. But, it, but, but in the old days, there wasn't anything there for... I mean, like, for, for quite a they had to do something. So everybody get, got together. It's not only Arandamob, there had a lot of other tribes coming into the mission days for Russian and stuff like that. So they worked as well. You know, better, you know, better work for better Russian in those days. So they had really many hands doing this work. For the benefit of everyone? Everyone, yes, exactly, for everyone. So when it was finished and they turned the water on, big celebration. Oh, as soon as the water water flowed into the tank on that fir- on that maybe on that first Sunday of October, everybody just sang a quaja quaja quaja. So that's why we have this Kubrilla Day every year. On that same day, the water first poured into the tank from here all the way to Emmonsburg. And people were, and then people could be well and stop being yes, sick. Yes, there was dying. no more sickness and all that. A lot of people got sick from the drinking salty water and all that sort of stuff. But quite for me, it made everything different. 
then Amundsburg grew. Everything grew at Amundsburg. The cattle, that uh, uh, vegetable gardens and stuff like that. Everything was growing. Mervyn, I think without water, no life. No, not without water, there is no life. You gotta have water all the time. Water is precious. Doesn't matter where you are, water is precious. So, how did. Can you talk a little bit about how the community talked about laying the pipe and taking this project on, making it happen? How did. Did people get together and talk? How did you know, do you know any of the story of how it happened? Like oh, not really, but like like the first first uh, Albrecht, old Inura, his name was. Uh, like they had to get they had to really to do you know like had to get the quite to Ndari. but how, when, and all that sort of stuff, you know. Right. Once they had the money, they, they, they paid for the pipelines and everything. And big motivation, stop people dying. Exactly. Stop people dying. We lot, in those days, we lost a lot, lot of people because of the bad water. <coughs> so the only, the, only, the only option was this one here, Cabrilla. And people knew about the spring? Yep. Because they used to come with... Uh, donkeys, donkey carts and camel to fill the containers up and stuff like that. In the old days, big containers on the camel, on the camel's back, back to Ndari. And then somebody, somebody had the idea of how could we bring this water to community? Well, it was that Ingarda, Albrecht. It, it was his idea to put this through, get this project done and things like that. They had to. Now we even got both running quite from me to Ndari. Thanks for what happened here. Because we would have no quadra ourselves at Ndari. Kevin? So then they had the water coming into Ndari and the church service and celebrated first Sunday October every year. Every year. How did the the dress up of the cowboys and Indians and the horse race, how did that become part of Caprilla? Well, as the years changed towards today, everything's changed. You know, from the old days, from old donkey riding, camel days, everything's different now to what we wear today as a cowboy, horses and stuff. Stockman. Stockman thing. And it's, it's been still carrying on today with this younger kids we got now. But more generations to come. And this thing is the Cobrilla Day spirit, horse riding, cowboys, and gonna go for just about forever. So it was an excuse for making a big celebration. 
Oh, for water, yes. You said before, water is life. The water is life. So, you're telling me something interesting. I'm going to move a little bit, question, but what you're also saying is that culture, culture grows and changes with generation. Some things change. Some things stay the same. But some, 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 something changes. Some changes. Each generation? Hmm. New generation and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, everything changes. But water makes everything change. Since the day one this water brought into Ndari, that changed everything. But after all these years, it's obviously still important to community because a lot of people here for Capilla today, a lot of people. Yes. So community remembers, community knows it's important. Yes, exactly, that's exactly. Mm. And you know, like, like I said, it's generations to come. You know, once we, once we too old or once we go on, the young generation is going to take it on. They'll be coming here every year. They'll be preparing horses and stuff like that for 12 months. You know, like, oh, Kubri Day is coming up. I only got six months to Kubri, so where's my horse? That's the main thing that everybody be looking at and looking for. Horses. Thanks, Kevin. Mervyn. Kevin over here and Mervyn, yeah? Yeah. I'm thanking you both. I want yeah, to no worries. Yes, that was uh, Karma, Karma's Ribs, Paul Tolley, speaking with uh, Mervyn Raggett. And uh, again, for my pronunciation, Kevin uh, Ung Wanunka, uh, ending that report. Uh, that's going to conclude Strong Voices uh, for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you missed any of the stories or wanted to listen back to the program, uh, we'll be posting up some of those stories up to the Karma website at www.karma.com.au. I'll also be posting up a podcast of the show as well this afternoon so if you want to listen back to the program as a whole that'll be up on karma's soundcloud as well also make sure you check out our social media our facebook and twitter as well we'll be back the same time tomorrow from 11 to 12 stay safe and enjoy the rest of your day